Well, I would direct your attention today back to Revelation chapter 12. Revelation chapter 12. Last Lord's Day, only making our way through verse 6 of this text, was uh, somewhat, in my mind, like uh, having the family sit down to watch an amazing movie only to get to that part where the climax reaches its, its high point, and you're like, wow! And the mom and dad stop the remote and say, okay, kids, it's time to go to bed, and we'll finish this later. I don't know how that works in your house. That does not work well in my house whatsoever, all right? Because the kids are all like, we'll never finish. And it was only a 30-minute movie, you know, <laughs> that kind of a thing in our house. And, uh, well... We're not going to finish again today, but Lord willing, we do want to uh, make our way a little more forward in this drama. Um, We left somewhat my own heart hanging um, to try to understand more of this glorious drama. For in fact, this uh, great drama that we've entitled The Battle for the Cosmos is in truth uh, the, the drama of all of the Bible. We'll say more about that in a moment. We have seen in this battle for the cosmos uh, that stretches from chapter 1, or chapter 12 and verse 1, all the way through chapter 15 and verse 4, that it it revolves around three great acts, if we were to kind of break this up like a drama or like a play. And it has a glorious conclusion uh, at the end of those three acts. We mentioned act number 1. Uh, If you took notes, you can look back over those maybe if you have them. If not, you can just kind of jot a few things down to give you a big picture view of where we're going to be going for the next several months. Act, excuse me, Act 1 is the battle with the dragon. And the battle with the dragon is in chapter 12, verses 1 to 17. That's what we began to open up last Lord's Day. Act number 2 is the battle with the beast in Acts 13. Verses 1 through 8. And then there is a brief uh, aside or intermission or parenthesis somewhat in chapter 13 verses 9 to 10 where the church is exhorted to, to, to endure and have faith until the very end. And then picking back up with the third act in chapter 13 and verse 11, we find the battle with the second beast or as he's later called in the book of Revelation in chapter 16, he's called the false prophet. So there's a battle that the church is engaged in between the beast, the dragon, or the dragon, the beast, and the second beast, or rather, the false prophet. This uh, this false trinity, which we'll say more about as we get down the road, each, each of these in- entities, each of these individuals, the dragon, the beast, and the false prophet, they embody somewhat a, a mimicking mockery of the triune God. The dragon paralleling the father, and the beast paralleling the son, and the false prophet paralleling the Holy Spirit. And this all concludes in chapter 14, verses 1 to 5, by way of of the singing of a new song of worship of the heavenly hosts, who, who before the throne of God and with the four living creatures and the elders who are there, they sing this song that no one knows but the 144,000, or as we've seen before, the countless multitude of the church. And that sums up in chapter 12, verse 1 through chapter 14, verse 5, that first section of this battle for the cosmos, that first uh, dramatic presentation where the church is called to endure and have faith to the end, leaving the second section, chapter 14, verse 6, all the way through 15, verse 4, for us to think about at a latter time. To the first act, the battle with the great dragon, we want to turn again our attention today. And we mentioned last time that this act falls out in four sequential and intimately related scenes, pictures that happen in the unfolding of the act. And they're intimately related because, because as one scene closes and the other scene opens, the, the previous scene influences how we think about the next scene. So there, there's an organic relationship between uh, the scenes. As you would think, there's this organic relationship throughout all the Bible. And they point us, as all things, 
to the gospel truth of Jesus and his triumph over his enemies. So just to kind of lay out these scenes for us once again, I want us to kind of have somewhat of a brief review of scenes one and two, and then we'll move into scene three uh, today. But before we do that, let's turn our attention to Revelation chapter 12, and let's just read through the text and hear the story again. John says, And a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, And the moon was under her feet. She was pregnant. Or she was crowned, I'm sorry, and her head were a crown of 12 stars. She was pregnant and was crying out in birth pangs in the agony of giving birth. And another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns. And on his head seven diadems. His tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven. And cast them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth, so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. She gave birth to a male child, one who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. But her child was caught up to God and to his throne, and the woman fled into the wilderness, where she has a place prepared by God, in which she is to be nourished for 1,260 days. Now war arose in heaven, Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought back, but he was defeated. And there was no longer any place for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who is called the devil, and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world, he was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of His Christ have come. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God. They have conquered Him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. For they loved not their lives even unto death. Therefore rejoice, O heavens. And you who dwell in them, but woe to you, O earth and sea. For the devil has come down to you in great wrath, because he knows that his time is short. And when the dragon saw that he had been thrown down to the earth, he pursued the woman who had given birth to the male child. But the woman who was given, but the woman was given the two wings of the great eagle, so that she might fly from the serpent into the wilderness to the place where she is to be nourished for a time and times, and half a time. The serpent poured water like a river out of his mouth after the woman to sweep her away with a flood. But the earth came to the help of the woman, and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed the river that the dragon had poured from his mouth. Then the dragon became furious with the woman and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring, on those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. We'll stop there because the last phrase in verse 17 really goes with chapter 13. In scene number one, we encounter what we mentioned last time as the players in the drama. In the opening lines of chapter 12, we are introduced to the central figures in this opening act. Two signs in heaven that should grip the attention of all on the earth. There is a woman who is great with child and a dragon great with evil intent in his heart. The woman who is glorious in beauty is great with agony as the child is ready to be born. The dragon, also notably glorious, seems almost though hideous in his glory. With multiple heads and horns and jewels, they point to his wisdom and his power and his authority. But it seems to be some sense of an audacious display of pomp, a pride that certainly will come before a great fall. And this sets the stage for the plot to unfold in the second scene in verses 4 to 6. And here we observe a plot filled with rebellion, filled with readiness, and filled with rescue. 
The plot thickens, as they say, when the dragon revealing his true colors in leading a heavenly rebellion of the angelic host, causing one-third of them to rebel against the majesty on high and quickly turn on the woman and her child, who he stands ready to consume at his birth. This male child, this male child who stands as the sole obstacle to the dragon's objective. The dragon's objective is domination of the world. But the male child is the one who has been appointed by God to rule the nations with a rod of iron. And as the plot unfolds rather rapidly, in just about a verse or so, we see the, the, the places or the plans of the dragon have failed in a divine rescue of the child. The child has been caught up to heaven and placed on a royal throne. And the woman, in her weakness, in her agony, in her pain, in her, her vulnerability, the woman has escaped to the wilderness. She has fled, where she will graciously be provided for by God, kept safe from the destructive powers of the dragon. And the dragon is not done. He will return. But we'll say more about that later. We observe briefly the grand significance of this drama seen in the identity of our actors. This is no small-time, backstreet kind of a play with actors that no one has ever heard of. I, I, if you drive on, the, on Silver Creek Road, out going on some little, little back roads and stuff, have you ever heard of the Hip Pocket Theater? All right. Uh, it's a little bitty, you know, hole in the wall, kind of a hip pocket. It's just like you think of a hip pocket. This little bitty play where things happen kind of out in the woods, if you've ever driven by this kind of a place. It's just a few miles from here. This isn't the hip pocket theater. This is, this is the, the drama of the entirety of the Bible. It's not that no one has ever heard of these kinds of actors, or they will amount to no consequence. This is a grand drama indeed. It is what we call the battle for the cosmos, and it is not overstated by calling it that. Recapitulated here in these six short verses, in a few brief lines, is the whole dramatic plot of the Bible itself. Now think with me as we try to draw out the significance of this, leading us into the third act of the play. In the beginning, after the fall, the woman was told that in great agony and pain she would indeed bring forth a child that would be the great deliverer of mankind, who would crush the serpent and reverse the curse. It is this child who eventually is delivered by a woman. Or, we might say, he is delivered by the nation of Israel. And it is she from whom salvation comes. Remember the scripture that says, salvation comes from the what? Salvation comes from the Jews. The Jewish nation embodies this woman. But ultimately, this, this woman is pictured in the young maiden Mary, who is the mother of the Messiah herself, who literally, in great pain, brings forth the Messiah Jesus, whom Paul says in Galatians is born of a woman. This woman, though, we're not done with her. This woman is now seen in the church, who, like Eve, is still longing for the full reversing of the curse, living outside the garden, having access to the tree of life, and is restricted from it. Think of this for a moment. The connections between the church, the connections between the church and Israel, the connections between the church and Eve, the connections between the church and Mary. The church, who like Israel of old was led through the wilderness and also cast into exile, provided for by God, but still longing for the land of perfect rest. The woman here is cast into the wilderness for a place prepared for her. She is nourished by God, but she's in the wilderness. She's not in the land of promise. She's not really where she wants to be. She hasn't gotten back to the garden. The church who, like Mary, had to flee to Egypt in her shame and fear and is waiting to be brought back when all is clear. Remember Mary and Joseph who fled to Egypt and they couldn't return until they got the all clear in the dream to Joseph that those who sought the life of the child were what? Were dead. 
The church is still like her, cast away, waiting for the all-clear sign that all who seek her life are in fact dead until she can finally come back and return to her rightful place. The church, consider whom the Apostle Paul writes in the book of Galatians chapter 4 verse 19. Paul writes that the church is longing to see Christ formed in her. It's amazing the language that Paul uses. Paul writes that he is longing as an apostle to see, hear this, he wants to see Christ formed in the churches. Until this birth occurs, the apostle sees himself in the anguish of childbearing. Now that might be some pretty vivid imagery for us to conceptualize. The apostle, a guy, identifying himself with a woman giving birth. But what is he trying to give birth to? He's trying to give birth to the very forming of Christ in the womb, if you will, of the church. Now that's some imagery that usually we we just don't think in. The church, like the woman cast into the wilderness, is suffering in this anguish of childbirth until that day when she displays the fullness of Christ Himself in the presence of God presented blameless with great joy. And thus the devil prowls about like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. And we will see today as the drama unfolds that he has been defanged. Our text says he's been thrown down or he has come down and the wilderness church is being protected presently by the child himself, who has defeated this arch nemesis of his people and has been exalted on high to the very throne of God himself. Now that brief review leads us to the third scene in our act of the battle with the dragon. And this is going to be the focus that we'll have for the remaining time this morning. I want you to look with me again in Revelation chapter 12, Verses 7 through 12. Let's just read it again. War arose in heaven. Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon. And the dragon and his angels fought back. But he was defeated and there was no longer any place for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down. That ancient serpent who is called the devil. And Satan, the deceiver of the whole world, he was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come, for the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God. And they have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. For they loved not their lives even unto death. Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. But woe to you, O earth and sea. For the devil has come down to you in great wrath because he knows that his time is short. This is a vivid, sweeping picture of what transpires following the ascension and the life, death, resurrection, ascension, exaltation of Christ, what's happening in the heavens. Now, think with me for just a moment. Scene one that we saw that introduced the players took place in heaven. Scene two that unfolded the plot took place on the earth. Scene three, now, that is going to make a glorious proclamation about these realities, is back where? We're back in heaven. And we're going to find in scene number four, we're back on the earth. He continues to be taken from earth, or heaven to earth, and heaven to earth again, seeing these two realms are intimately related, but it is heaven, it is the picture of heaven that gives the reality on earth its true sense of significance and its true meaning. Without the unfolding, if you will, without the disclosure of heaven's picture, we would never be able to make sense of what's going on in our lives down here in this world. And this is why it's so important for you and I to maintain an eternal perspective in everything we're going through in our lives. Because there is a reality, there is a truth, there is, there is an existence that surpasses the, 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 the touch feel, taste, smell of your existence every day. But you're led to believe by this world that you only what? 
You only go around once, baby. This is it. This is what you've got. All right. You've. I, I, I keep hearing the announcements. The big game is almost here, and I'm just like, who cares? But I'm sorry if that like offends. And, and I like football. All right. But it's like all some people are living for right now. They only know what this world gives. And there are other people in this world who are falling to pieces. And they just don't know how to keep their life together. And they just feel like it's about to come apart at the seams every day. What do we say to that person? Do we just say, well, you only go around once, baby? This is it. It doesn't get any better than this whatsoever. This is all there is. No, for the one who has his joy wrapped up in this world, we say, wake up! There is something that is going on that so far surpasses the greatness of the game. And to the one who is in despair, we say, look up. There is something that so far surpasses and gives meaning to the absolute seeming insignificance of your life in this world. There is a heavenly reality that is so grand and so great. There is something going on in the cosmos that will blow your mind if you just stop and wake up or look up. And you see, you and I here today are susceptible to both of those lies. And they are lies from hell itself. The lie that tells you to find your joy in this world, and the lie that tells you there's nothing other than this world. One that leads you to a a, a fancy and a dream that will wake up one day and be empty, and one that leads you to absolute despair. Friends, there is more to your life than the joys of this world that TV promises, or the next movie coming out, or the sequel. Oh, I can't wait for the sequel. I'm meddling. I guess that's my job. The point is to remind you, it's not about just this world. Your mind must be taken from earth to heaven and back again so you can actually have a hope that is rooted in something that lasts. That's what the gospel does to us. Brings us good news in the midst of a world of either fake news or bad news. I want you to look with me as we walk through this proclamation. What is what is the announcement that we hear? What is the news that we get from heaven? I want us to observe how the battle unfolds and the proclamation that's made. The proclamation which explains the drama of the plot and gives its theological or its Godward type implications comes in three parts. Proclamation part one, proclamation part two, and proclamation part three. Those aren't very catchy or, you know... Uh, inventive, but they're simple. Hopefully we can keep that down. One, two, three. Okay? Think with me for just a moment. Verses 7 through 9, Proclamation Part 1. The throwing down of the dragon. In the whole of this passage, I have counted up four times, not just 7 through 12, but the entirety of 12, 1 to 17, I've counted four times that the devil himself is said to be, or the dragon, the serpent, that ancient serpent of old, the deceiver of the whole world, is said to be thrown down, cast down. And, and it's done in such a way that he's thrown down by God, by someone who is of a greater power. Once, he is said to have come down. But just so we don't think that he comes down of his own accord, just to like check things out, we need to realize that he's coming down because he's been thrown down. It's like the guy that you know gets booted from the bedroom and he's out on the couch and the kids come down and they're like, well, Dad, where are they go? Well, I wanted to watch TV for a little while. As if it was his you know, choice. Now you're out here because Mom kicked you out of the bed. All right? So that's a whole other... I'm not bitter. I slept in my bed last night with my wife. I wasn't on the couch. So just so you keep, keep that in mind. There's another time in this text that the angels of the dragon are said to be thrown down. There is an absolute sovereign dominion in this text that is put forth about one who stands over the dragon. The dragon is thrown down, he comes down, his minions, his hosts, they are thrown down as well. They are given, if you will, spiritually, the boot. 
Here is a spiritual, heavenly presentation of the crushing blow that is wielded by the heavenly hosts against that ancient serpent, the devil, and his forces. The archangel, as he is described in Jude, verse 9, Michael, and his angels, representing the other two-thirds of the heavenly host, function under the banner of King Jesus, now exalted to his throne, they have an unmatchable superior force to the defeated dragon. The dragon, though he seems fearsome with his heads and his horns and his diadem, he seems wise, he seems powerful, he seems authoritative. Again, like I mentioned earlier, it it is an audacious display of pomp. It's pride that's going to come before the fall. At every turn... The dragon is foiled again. It just seems like it's going so well for him. And oh, I just missed her by that much. God takes her away in the wilderness. I just, where'd the kid go? I I, I just love the picture. He's poised. He's ready. And the the child is delivered and taken up into heaven. Now now that's that's a very quick way of saying Jesus was born into the world. He lived. He died, was buried, was raised again, exalted on high, and now sits enthroned. So you see how much of of Christ's existence, if you will, his manifestation in this world, his exaltation into the heavenly realms, is is, is included in that phrase back in chapter 13, verse 1. She gave birth to a male child, but her child was caught up to God. I mean, boom, boom. Sounds really quick. But there's a lot of stuff that happens in that window. But it's because of what happens in that window that the heavens themselves are pictured as having this superior power over the dragon and his angels. I mean, it seems as if Satan might have some wielding force in the heavens. But in fact, because of what Christ has done in this world, we see in heaven a victory that takes just that long. Michael, the archangel, the chief of all the angels, and his heavenly host fight against the dragon. And notice the phrase, verse 7, and the dragon and his angels fought, fought back. That's all it says. But he was what? Defeated. I mean, it's pretty. it seems pretty quick. In fact, all those times when the heavenly hosts in the book of Revelation come to wage war with the enemy, what do we see? It happens. <clears throat> Jesus comes back and slays the nations with the word of his mouth. Just like that. All the the armies, later in the book of Revelation, it says, in Revelation chapter 20, verse 7, when the thousand years are ended, Satan is released from his prison, will come out to the sea of the nations, who are the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. Their number is like the sand of the sea. It sounds so incredible. It sounds so powerful. They marched up over the broad plain of the earth. They surrounded the camp of the saints, the beloved city, but fire came down from heaven and consumed them, and the devil who had been deceived was thrown in the lake of fire. I mean, it's just like, it's just like that. It seems so insurmountable. It seems so overwhelming. It's like when the disciples try to cast demons out of some people, and they can't do it, and Jesus comes back, and he's like, how long did I put up with you people? Bring them here. And he takes care of it. Why? Because he has power. Jesus doesn't just have a little more power. This is why things like just fancied, if you will, the evangelical world back in the 90s. Frank Peretti and his books on this present darkness and piercing the darkness. Anybody ever read those? Use them to start a fire. Or a stool. Or props for garbage. I don't know, something. They, They are... They're, they're as hideous as the beast that they try to picture in them. They are so chock full of bad theology. The angelic hosts, in Peretti's view, cannot defeat the enemy without the saints down here having a prayer meeting. They can't do it. And when the people pray, it's like the real angels start to glow, you know? And the other angels start to get scared. Look! They are defeated. The reason that Michael and his hosts have such superior power over Satan, they're both what? They're both angels. In all truth, they're they're all created angelic beings. In some sense, in themselves, probably equally powerful. 
But in all truth, Michael fights for who? Michael fights for Christ. And Christ has an infinite power over the enemy that is unmatchable. And his power is not dependent upon me. And aren't you glad? Aren't you glad Jesus and the angelic hosts of heaven are not dependent for their power upon your prayer life? And this is not to be insulting about your prayer life. Let me just put myself where you are. It's pathetic. And if the entire heavens is dependent upon our prayer life, we better just watch the game. Because that's all we really have, is this world. Because we're doomed. We are doomed. If it's about our prayer life, and our Bible study, and our scripture memory class. That doesn't mean that we shouldn't pray, and we shouldn't study the Bible, and we shouldn't memorize scripture. We should do all those things. Why? Because it's a matter of obedience, number one. And it sanctifies us, number two. And it glorifies God. But it doesn't ensure the outcome of the universe. The battle of the cosmos is settled at the cross of Christ. We'll say more about that in a minute. Now, where was I on these notes? I have no idea. Proclamation number one. I'm glad I made simple notes. All right, That way I can come back to them. Proclamation part two. Okay, for those of you who are still hanging with me after one point. Proclamation part two. We saw the throwing down of the dragon. Now we're going to see the triumph of the accused church. The triumph of the accused church. Verses 10 and 11. If I can find my text again. Revelation 12, verse 10 and 11. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of His Christ have come, for the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down who accuses them day and night before our God. And they have conquered Him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, for they loved not their lives even unto death. Note, before we really look at this, the similarity of verse 10, chapter 12, 10, and chapter 11, verse 15. Chapter 12, verse 10 says, And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of His Christ have come for the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before God. Now, go back to chapter 11, verse 15. Then the seventh angel blew his trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven saying, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. There is a note in both those texts of similarity. But I don't want us to be confused. We're 15, or 11.15. Excuse me, I've written this down in my notes wrong, so I want to fix it because I'm confusing myself. Where 11.15 takes us to the end. And chapter 12 and verse 10 gives the, the heavens a word about the beleaguered saints in the wilderness. How, how do they survive? In other words, 11.15 is taking us to the very end of time. The kingdom of our God and of His Christ, they've come. The kingdoms of the world have become the kingdom of God. The kingdom of the world, the kingdom of darkness, it's gone. Everything's new. That's 11.15. It's shooting us way forward to the ultimate end, if you will. But in chapter 12, in verses 10 and 11, we are not talking about the end. We are talking about a reality that has transpired, that has infiltrated the world, if you will, of the beleaguered saints who are in the wilderness. And how is it that the beleaguered saints continue to survive? Number one, in verse 10, it says they have a defeated foe. Their enemy has been what? He's thrown down. He's thrown down. The sting of death has been removed. Satan here is seen as defanged. He is thrown down. He's full of wrath. He's full of fury. But he's running around making a lot of noise. And he really cannot what? He cannot lay hold of us. I was listening a few nights ago. Um, I don't always get in the car at 9 o'clock. But I was in the car at 9 o'clock and I turned on 
KCBI there, MacArthur was on, and uh, and he's talking about the passage in John where it says that the enemy can't touch us. And that, that, that passage, it's translated, can't touch us, but what it really means is he can't lay hold of us. Now, Satan can create all kinds of havoc in your life and in my life, and he can, he can do much harm. But those who are laid hold of by Christ, you get the picture? Cannot be laid hold of by the enemy. Satan can wreak havoc, he can wreak destruction, he can cause all kinds of things. He, he can, as it were, let's imagine you're in a house and you're standing on the bottom floor. He can make an earthquake come, the ground shake. He can make the whole house fall down. He can put the house on fire. He can send someone in to even kill us. But though we are put to death, what, all day long, we are like sheep to be slaughtered, what will happen to the one who holds faithful to Christ? He's preserved. Satan can't have him. That's what it means. He can't have you. Note, our enemy is a defeated foe in verse 10, but also in verse 11, it's very clear that they, because of Christ, are seen as victors in Him. Look at verse 11. They have conquered Him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, for they love not their lives even to the death. This is a statement being made from heaven's perspective about the church in the wilderness. How does the church endure in the wilderness? By holding to Christ. And by loving not our lives even to the death but holding to Him tenaciously with all that we have every day. And I love the passage where, where, uh, where Jesus talks about the faith of the disciples. How big does your faith have to be? What does He compare it to? The grain of a what? A mustard seed. So in the end, is it your faith that saves you or Christ's faithfulness? It's, it's Christ's faithfulness. It's His faithfulness. They conquer Him by the blood of the Lamb. They conquer Him by the cross. They conquer Him by the gospel, by the word of their testimony. What is the word of their testimony? Their testimony about holding to Christ. And they love not their lives even to the death. I love the story in Pilgrim's Progress about Pilgrim as he's He's left the, I think, House Beautiful, they call it, and he's on, the, he's on the road through the Valley of Humiliation, and he comes across Apollyon. Remember that story? For lack of being able to summarize it well enough, I'm just going to read to you what Bunyan wrote. But now in this Valley of Humiliation, poor Christian was hard put to it. For he had gone but a little way before he espied a foul fiend coming over the field to meet with him. His name was Apollyon. And then did Christian begin to be afraid and to cast his mind whether to go back or to stand his ground. But he considered again that he had no armor for his back, therefore thought that to turn back might give a greater advantage to the enemy and ease him to pierce him with his darts, and therefore he resolved to venture and stand his ground. For thought he... Had I no more in mine eye than the saving of my life, it would be the best way to stand. So he went on, and Apollyon met him. Now the monster was hideous to behold. He was clothed with scales like a fish, for they are his pride. He had wings like a dragon and feet like a bear, and out of his belly came fire and smoke, and his mouth was as the mouth of a lion. And when he was come up to Christian, he beheld him with a disdainful countenance, and thus began to question him, Whence come you, and whither are you bound? I come from the city of destruction, Christian said, which is the place of all evil, and I'm going to the city of Zion. But this I perceive, thou art one of my subjects, for all that country is mine, and I am the prince and god of it. How is it then that thou hast run away from thy king? Were it not that I hope thou mayest do me more service, I would strike thee now at one blow to the ground. Christian said, I was born indeed in your dominion, but your service was hard, and your wages such as a man could not live on, for the wages of sin is death. 
for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Therefore, when I was come to years, I did as other prudent persons do, look out if perhaps I might mend myself. There is no prince that will thus lightly loose his subjects, neither will I as yet loose thee. But since thou complainest of thy service and wages, be content to go back. What our country will afford, I do here promise to give thee. But I have let myself to another, even to the king of princes. How can I with fairness go back with thee? Thou hast done in this according to the proverb, changed a bad for a worse. You got a bad deal, kid. Bunyan didn't say you got a bad deal. I, I said that. But it is ordinary for those that have professed themselves his servants after a while to give him the slip and return again to me. You do that, and all will be well. Christian says, I have given him my faith and sworn my allegiance to him. How can I go back from this and be charged as a traitor? Thou didst the same to me, and yet I am willing to pass by all, if now thou wilt yet turn to me and go back. What I promised thee was before I came of age, and besides, I count that the prince under whose banner I now stand is able to absolve me, yea, and to pardon also what I did as to my compliance with thee. And besides, O thou destroying Apollyon, to speak the truth, I like his service, his wages, his servants, his government, his company and country better than yours. Ouch. Therefore, leave off to pursue me further. I am his servant, and I will follow him. Consider again, when thou art in cold blood, what thou art like to meet with in the way that thou goest. Thou knowest that for the most part of his servants they come to an ill end because they are transgressors against me and my ways. How many of them have been put to shameful deaths? And besides, thou countest his service better than mine, whereas he never came yet from the place where he is to deliver any that served him out of our hands. But as for me, how many times, as all the world very well knows, have I delivered either by power or fraud those who have faithfully served me from him and his, though taken by them, and so I will deliver thee. His forbearing at presence to deliver them is on purpose, Christian said. To try their love, whether they will cleave to him to the end. And as for the ill end thou sayest to come to, they, 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 that they come to, that is most glorious in their account. For, for present deliverance they do much expect it. For they stay for their glory, and then they shall have it when their prince comes in his, and the glory of his angels. Thou hast already been unfaithful in thy service to him, and how dost thou think to receive wages from him? Wherein, O Apollyon, have I been unfaithful to him? Thou didst faint at first setting out, when thou wast almost choked in the gulf of despond. Thou didst attempt wrong ways to be rid of thy burden, whereas thou should have stayed till thy prince had taken it off. Thou didst sinfully sleep and lose thy choice thing. Thou wast almost persuaded to go back at the sight of the lions. And when thou talkst of thy journey and of what thou hast heard and seen, thou inwardly desirest of vain glory in all that thou sayest or dost. Christian thought. And then said, All this is true. Isn't it? Isn't it true of us all? Haven't we often desired the world? Haven't we often fainted? Haven't we often lacked courage? Haven't we often slept along the way? But there's much more, Christians said, that you've left out. But the prince whom I serve and honor is merciful and ready to forgive. Besides these infirmities, possess me in thy country. But besides these infirmities, possess me in your country. For there I sucked in them, and have groaned under them, been sorry for them, and have obtained pardon from my prince. We conquer 
by the blood of the Lamb, by the word of our testimony, of our trust in the gospel, and loving not our lives to the death. The church is triumphant in the work of Christ. There's one more part to the proclamation we need to hear. The telling of the blessing and the curse. Verse 12. Therefore, because of this, because of this word of triumph, because of this word of the throwing down of the dragon and the triumph of the church, there is one final word the church needs to hear. Therefore, rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. But woe to you, O earth and sea, for the devil has come down to you in great wrath, because he knows that his time is short. Here we are given, as it were, a divine oracle. The prophets in the Old Testament spoke oracles of weal or blessing, and oracles of woe or curse. You might recall when the people went into the promised land, they, they had some on Mount Gerizim and some on Mount Ebal speaking back and forth the curse and the blessing. If they adhered to the covenant, they'd be blessed. If they, they broke the covenant, they'd be cursed. And here, the, the, the heavenly announcement from this voice that John hears is a word of blessing and a word of cursing. For those who are the heaven dwellers... They are addressed first. Do you notice them in verse 12? Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. The heaven dwellers, those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life, they are called to rejoice. They can sing, for example, with the psalmist in Psalm 96 when it says, O sing to the Lord a new song. And you ought to make note in your mind of that phrase, a new song. It's used twice here in the book of Revelation, speaking about the song of the redeemed. Oh, sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord all the earth. Sing to the Lord, bless His name. Tell of His salvation from day to day. Declare His glory among the nations, His marvelous works among all the peoples. For great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. He is to be feared above all gods. For all the gods of the peoples are worthless idols. But the Lord made the heavens. Splendor and majesty are before Him. Strength and beauty are in His sanctuary. Ascribe to the Lord, O families of the peoples. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due His name. Bring an offering and come into His courts. Worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness. Tremble before Him all the earth. Say among the nations, the Lord reigns. Yes, the world is established. It shall never be moved. He will judge the peoples with equity. Hear this. Let the heavens be glad. Let the earth rejoice. Let the sea roar and all that fills it. Let the field exult and everything in it. Then shall all the trees of the forest sing for joy before the Lord. For He comes. For He comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world in righteousness and the peoples in His faithfulness. This is a rejoicing in God's salvation. A new song that is sung that is seen and unfolds and is manifest in the judgment of the nations. The broader title that we've had for almost this entirety of our study of the book of Revelation is God's salvation through judgment. He delivers you by bringing judgment upon His enemies. Hence, for all those, though, who dwell on the earth, the earth dwellers, in distinction from the heaven dwellers, there is woe. Why? Look at the text. It says, Woe to you on the earth and sea, for the devil has come down. He has been thrown down. He is in a state of rabid fury. The pressure, if you will, has been put on him. The heat has been turned up, and Satan knows that his days are short. Because there is coming a day when Christ will return and throw the devil and his angels into that final pit of fire, that final time. There is behind this entire text a rich gospel background that I had Paul read from a little bit ago in the book of Mark. And in the few moments that we have left, I want you to turn in your Bibles to the book of Mark. 
in Mark chapter 3, we hear of an encounter between Jesus and the scribes who came from Jerusalem. In Mark chapter 3 and verse 22, we read that the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, He is possessed by Beelzebul, and by the prince of demons he casts out demons. And he called them to him and said to them in parables, How can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but is coming to an end. But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. Then indeed he may plunder his house. Now this is a fascinating text in Mark's Gospel. It is surrounded by events where Christ has been healing people and getting the attention, both positive and here negative, of some of the leaders. The problem is stated very clearly in verse 22. The scribes who come down from Jerusalem are saying to all the people, He's possessed by Beelzebul and the prince of demons. He he uses the prince of demons to cast out demons. That's the problem. In other words, what they're trying to do is level a charge against Jesus that will discredit him in the eyes of the people. They're trying to say, basically, he has a demon. He's demonic. He's possessed. He's not on the side of Yahweh. He's not on the side of our God. He's on the side of our enemy. Don't be be fooled. He's like the charlatan that would come through town. He's like the huckster that would try to lead the people astray. Don't follow him. Don't listen to him. Jesus comes out in typical fashion rather than just saying, no, or you're a bunch of liars, or you're a you know brood of vipers, as you might say later on. He, he comes out and he addresses them in typical fashion with a story. He gets their attention with a parable. Now the problem is, the parable, like all parables, to those who are the uninitiated and those who don't have their eyes open, they don't get the parable at all. And they, they, they leave this encounter completely astonished and befuddled at what's happened. But Jesus tells a story. He called them to him in verse 23, and he said to them in parables, How can Satan cast out Satan? In other words, that doesn't make any sense. Why would Satan be going around casting out his own demons? Why would Satan inhabit a person and then cast the demon out? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. If a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but is coming to an end. But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods, unless he first binds the strong man, and then indeed he may plunder his house. In other words, Jesus basically says that, guys, if Satan is going around casting out Satan, then why are we having this conversation? Because there wouldn't be any demons inhabiting people. It'd It'd be a moot point here. Satan would be divided against himself. His house would not stand. His house would collapse like a house of cards. Your argument, he says, doesn't stand. He says in order to to, to cast out the, the demons, in order to plunder the house, there's a strong man that first must be what? Must be dealt with. But once that strong man is dealt with, then you can plunder his house. For example, if you're standing guard at your house at night and have your lights on, your security thing posted out there in the front, what are you hoping to do to the burglar that comes by your house? You're hoping to deter him from what? Wanting to break in because you've got the big old security sign out there and you've got the lights on, you've got the alarm thing, you've got the big old sign that says, big ferocious dog. We don't have that. We just have a little bit of yappy dog. Couldn't really hurt anybody. But he's pretty scary still sometimes. And, and you're hoping to deter the enemy. With the thought that if they break in, they're going to signal the police, they're going to signal the authorities, the authorities are going to come, and one stronger than you will come and overpower them. So in order to really break in, you've got to first, you know, silence the alarm, I don't know, get rid of the dog, 
uh, break in when they're not there. You've got to dismiss the strong man. You've got to get rid of the strong man in order to come in and overpower the house. The point is seen in the background to this particular passage itself. So we have to go to one more place. We need to go to the book of Isaiah. Isaiah 49. I wish we had um, about another hour. (laughs) Lord willing, we will next week. But let's just see if we can try to draw some sense of a conclusion. The, The passage in Isaiah, Isaiah 49, begins in verse 14 and goes all the way through chapter 50, verse 11. So obviously, we cannot read that. But in Mark chapter 3... When people see the work of Christ, and they see the power of Christ over the enemy, they begin to mock him. Many began to believe in him, but others wanting to discredit him and rob from him that position of power and authority. Remember the scribes and the Pharisees, they feel very threatened with Christ. Christ is winning the approval of the masses. They want to discredit him, so the approval of the masses will turn back to them. They are, they are mocking the Lord Jesus, and they want the people to think that he really doesn't have the power that he obviously does. But Jesus comes and says, and what he's saying is, is in my coming to you, the reason that I have power over these demons, and the reason I have power to heal, and the reason I have power to minister in such a way, is because by my very coming into the world, I have bound The strong man. There is one, Mark says in Mark chapter 1, in verse 7, John the Baptist is baptizing and says, but there is one who's what? There's one who's mightier than I who's going to come. Mark presents Jesus as the stronger man. The stronger man has come into the realm of a strong man and has bound him and is in fact taking back captives for himself. In Isaiah chapter 49 and verse 24, this is the text I want you to see. 49, 24, and 25. Can the prey be taken from the mighty, or the captives of a tyrant be rescued? For thus says the Lord, even the captives of the mighty shall be taken, and the prey of the tyrant shall be rescued. For I will contend with those who contend with you, and I will save your children. I will make your oppressors eat their own flesh, and they shall be drunk with their own blood as with wine. Then all flesh shall know that I am the Lord your Savior and your Redeemer, the Mighty One of Jacob." In the midst of what looks like an impossible situation. The nation of Israel is is poised to go into exile. They are poised to go into captivity. They are poised to be destroyed. And coupled with that, once the people actually go into exile and they settle there for 70 years, at the decree of Cyrus to come back and rebuild the temple and rebuild the wall and rebuild the city, most of the people want to what? They want to stay. How will a people ever return? And notice something else in chapter 49 of Isaiah in verse 19. Listen to what it says. Surely your waste and your desolate places and your devastated land, surely now you surely now you will be too narrow for your inhabitants, and those who swallowed you up will be far away. The children of your bereavement will yet say in your ears, The place is too narrow for me. Make room for me to dwell in it. Then you will say in your heart, Who has borne these? I was bereaved and barren, exiled and put away. But who has brought up these? Behold, I was left alone. From where have these come? The prophet Isaiah is saying to the people, There's going to come a time when you try to get back into your land, when you try to return from the exile, you're going to find that the people that return with you and the people that inhabit the land after the exile are going to be greater than the ones that inhabited the land before. But, if we read the history, when the people are cast off into exile, many are killed, many are chained up, and they're taken off into exile, and many of them don't want to return. So how is it that when they return and in their exile, how is it that the land will now be too narrow? How is it now that there won't be room for everyone? 
Because in the prophet Isaiah, if we read throughout the whole rest of the book of Isaiah, the picture is of an expanding realm, and an expanding kingdom, and an expanding people. It's not just the remnant that returned physically in history. It's spiritually what's going to transpire when the greater servant comes and disarms the strong man, the enemies of God's people, and he sets up a kingdom that what? Starts like a little mustard seed and grows and grows and grows and grows until all the nations can inhabit its branches. In verses 24 and 26 that we read, God will do this thing. He will take the captor, he will bind him, he will throw him down, he will rescue his own, he will save the children, and all flesh will know that he is the Lord our Savior, our Redeemer, the Mighty One of Jacob. He does this, he accomplishes this in the life and death and resurrection, exaltation and enthronement of Jesus himself, who Mark 1 verse 7 says, is the stronger one. He rends the heavens in Mark chapter 1 verse 10. He comes down to lead his own from exile in the wilderness in a new, greater, lasting exodus that brings the people back to himself. Isaiah chapter 64, the people prayed for this. Oh, that you would rend, tear apart the heavens and come down. Interestingly, in the book of Mark, That phrasing is used only twice. It's used at the baptism of Jesus. When Jesus is baptized, the heavens are torn. It's a violent tearing. They're torn apart. And the Spirit of God descends upon Jesus, anointing Him so all the people will see He is the promised servant of God who comes to deliver from the strong man. And it's seen one more time in the book of Mark. It's seen at the crucifixion of Christ when the curtain is torn in two from top to bottom. The picture of heaven coming down to earth. It's torn in two. It's rent asunder showing that in Christ Jesus the strong man is in fact disarmed and access to the presence of God is given once again. Once again, remind yourself that's a picture Seeing the heavens rent and the Spirit of God descending. Seeing the veil torn in two from top to bottom. It's taking our attention where? It's taking our attention. Hear this and listen. It's taking your attention from earth to what? To heaven. And that is where your attention every day needs to be redirected. This is why Paul says like things like, Set your mind on things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of the throne of God. When Christ, who is your life, appears. Though we don't see Him now, we, 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 we look for Him to return. And He, John who says in 1 John chapter 3, He who has this hope, this hope that one day He is going to return, and all will be right. He who sees Him like that, He who has that hope, does what down here? purifies himself as he is pure. Holds on with faithfulness to the gospel. If all our attention is here, we'll either be distracted by the joys of the world, or we'll be destroyed and despairing because of the disappointments of the world. Your heart, my heart, your mind, my mind, need to be taken from earth to heaven, that I might then come back down to earth again, and live in such a way that holds to Christ holds to the gospel, doesn't love my life even to the death, and I find in Christ, I conquer the enemy. Because the enemy, in fact, is what? He's conquered. He's a defeated foe. Isaac Watts wrote these words on this particular text that we've seen in Revelation 12. He says, Let mortal tongues attempt to sing the wars of heaven when Michael stood, chief general of the eternal king, and fought the battles of our God. Against the dragon and his host, the armies of the Lord prevail. In vain they rage, in vain they boast. Their courage sinks, their weapons fail. Down to the earth was Satan thrown. Down to the earth his legions fell. Then was the trump of triumph blown and shook the dreadful deeps of hell. Now is the hour of darkness past. Christ has assumed his reigning power. Behold the great accuser cast 
down from the skies to rise no more. Twas by thy blood, immortal lamb, thine armies trod the tempter down. Twas by thy word and powerful name they gained the battle and renown. Rejoice, ye heavens, let every star shine with new glories round the sky. Saints, while ye sing the heavenly war, raise your deliverer's name on high. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you that we battle with the world and the flesh and the devil from a standpoint of ultimate victory. The victory does not depend upon us, for heaven has already rendered the verdict that the church that has been cast into the wilderness has conquered. She has conquered them by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, for they love not their lives even unto death. God, this is heaven's verdict on the church. This is heaven's divine statement that it makes about the church. And though our battle is not done and there is much more to, to, to the road to, to move down, God, heaven's verdict in this sense has been, has been settled. It's as if Paul were reminding us in Romans chapter 8 that those that you justified, you glorified. Speaking as if it's already done. God, we pray and we plead with you that you would give us this kind of a heavenly perspective while we battle this world with devils filled. And let us know, God, though many devils may threaten to undo us, one little word, one gospel word, one glorious bit of gospel truth about the triumph of Christ destroys all opposition. God, set our minds and fix our minds and hearts on these kinds of things, that we not be distracted by the joys of the world, that we not be, be despairing at the sight of what things look like around us. God, lift our eyes, lift our hearts, lift our souls above, we ask God in Jesus' name, and for his sake, for his glory and our joy. Amen.